Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks for tuning in. As always, we are recording at the Cleveland Public Library. Special thanks to them for making this possible. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast service. You know, you can go ahead and click five stars there. It makes us feel really good about the work we do here. And if you have any feedback, email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardsoncleveland.com. Any feedback or uh, guest requests that you might have, go ahead and send them my way. So this week on the podcast, Ken Harbaugh. Ken Harbaugh. Who is he? Why do you guys have him on the show? Well, uh, Ken Harbaugh is a, on the one hand, he's just sort of, I guess, a guy. Um, But he's running for uh, Congress in the District 7, which is basically uh, runs from like mid-North Ohio up to the Cleveland suburbs. And when I say he's just a guy, what I mean is that he is not a politician. He's a first-time candidate. Um, he is almost like uh, concocted in a lab or something like that. Like the, the Democrats going into this election really put an emphasis on candidate recruitment. And they hoped that people with th- solid biographies, you know, military background, good education, that kind of stuff would... Uh, kind of come out of the woodwork yeah and he's got i mean if you go down the checklist of everything democrats have been looking for in a candidate it's basically like you said it's ken harbaugh yeah so he, he went to duke i uh, went to yale law he's a uh, air force pilot or no he's a naval pilot right naval pilot and um uh run an international nonprofit to help put veterans to work uh, kind of like a red cross kind of thing um uh has a family former military academy professor kind of the uh, all-American, quote-unquote, so to speak. I mean, he's kind of what you think about when you think of those, like, classic 50s, you know, politicians or whatever who, oh, you know, he football star who went off to the military and then became a congressman all of a sudden. It's very Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Is he, like, Mr. Ohio? Does he have roots in Ohio? He kind of settled here. He came from a military family, so he's kind of, like, uh, you know, itinerant for a long time. His wife's from here, and he's lived here for a while. Um, you know, he he's running in a district that... It's pretty red. Uh, it went even stronger for Trump than sort of like the index might might suggest. So he definitely, I think he has like a story about, yeah, I'm not from here, but my wife's from here. I've been, been coming here for a long time. and But he's still got a really tough road to hope politically. Well, what's fascinating about him being in that district is you look at him and say the, oh, I don't know, put him in the 16th or something. And he's probably an odds-on favorite in that district, because just being an open district and what it is. He's been able to raise some money in a deep red district, though. It's not like he's just some, you know, nobody Yahoo candidate running around. Right. If you were to guess, what do you think his political future is? I don't know. Um, I think that he's someone who, despite not being a uh, somebody who's run for office before, he's obviously been doing it for a while, so we're kind of getting him sort of further along in his development. But I think he seems like somebody who's, who's always been interested in politics, and so um, I th- could see him running again, but I guess it's kind of hard to really project. We don't know what's going to happen this time. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if I were the Democratic Party, I'd, I'd want to encourage people like him to get involved. Well, let's see if we can glean some of those answers from the interview we did with Ken Harbaugh here on Ohio Matters. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we wanted to have you on because, uh, you know, you're kind of an upstart candidate, never run for office <laughs> before. and Never uh, run for anything before. Yeah, so we wanted to ask you, just kind of to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up? Yeah, I grew up in a uh, military family. And for me, that meant uh, bouncing around every couple of years, was born just outside uh, a military base. Uh, most of 
Uh, most of my childhood was actually spent uh, growing up in uh, in Europe overseas. I I remember going to work with my dad one day on one of those, uh, you know, take your kid to work days, except it, it was a little different in our case. His office was a bunker, 100 feet underground, deep inside, uh, deep inside Germany. And on that day, the, uh, they were undergoing a drill simulating a nuclear missile attack from Russia. My dad was the, the vice wing commander of this uh, reconnaissance squadron, and his job was to get all of the reconnaissance planes off the ground and uh, up in the air so that they could do their jobs and, and, and reconnoiter the, the battlefield. Uh, and he had between eight and nine minutes to get those air, aircraft off the ground, to get the, the pilots out to their cockpits, to get them fueled, uh, and to get them up in the air. And I remember sitting in that bunker with him and being surrounded by this organized chaos as uh, the pilots sprinted to their planes and the, the maintenance crews got them ready and, and they, they took off into the air. Uh, and then I remember after that uh, an eerie calm. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm a 10-year-old kid at the time. It, it had a pretty a profound impact. And I remember looking at my dad uh, during this, this moment of calm uh, and, and saying, uh, what now? And, and he turned to me and said something that, that I didn't appreciate at the time, although I always... The word stuck with me, and I remember them, them to this day. He said, now, son, we wait. And what he meant by that was, now we wait to die because we've done our mission, and even a 100 feet of earth and concrete and steel is not going to protect us from a Russian nuclear missile attack. Um, so I, I learned from a, a very young age that, that America needs its defenders. Uh, and when, when we got back to the States, I, I think I, I took that message to heart because I ended up joining the Navy myself and, and became a, a Navy combat recon pilot. So you, it wasn't just your dad that was in the military, but there, it's like a lineage, right? Yeah. Uh, my, my grandfather flew B-17s in, in World War II. Uh, my, my dad flew Flew Phantoms, a couple tours in Vietnam, three, and, and spent a career end, and, and we we went all over the uh, all over the world together uh, as, a, as a military brat. Uh, that was my childhood, and then my, my brother uh, joined the Air Force as well. So three generations of Air Force in the family. He flew F-16s. Uh, I decided to be the odd one out and join the Navy uh, Navy instead. But so is that like your version of rebelling? Yeah, because... my I guess I guess I could have just gotten the earring, right? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I spent nine years in the Navy as as my version of rebel. Like at one point, I thought, you know, I'm really going to stick it to my dad. I'm going to join the Navy. And I remember telling him I had done it. He put his arm around me and said, I'm proud of you. And I'm like, well, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> but, but no, in all seriousness, I think I was conditioned growing up to believe that we, we owed our country something. Looking at my grandfather's example, he was badly wounded in World War II. Uh, flying, he took a 20-millimeter uh, explosive round through his thigh on a mission off of... Uh, over New Ireland, a recon mission, um, flying a, a B-17 reconnaissance plane. My, my dad uh, flying RF-4s in, in Vietnam. Those are um, a reconnaissance variant of the Phantom and my brother who, who flew F-16s uh, in, in the Middle East. And my version of that when it was my turn was to, to join the Navy and go the, the intelligence route and fly EP-3s. So my grandpa was uh, in the military too. And so my dad grew up uh, moving around like Texas, yeah. he lived in the Philippines, you know, New York State, ended up in Ohio eventually. But um, I know that uh, for him, 
he's told me before, because he's now a pastor, and he grew up saying, you know, I, I didn't want to move around like that, and then I ended up, you know, being a pastor itinerant in a similar way, although maybe not quite as exotic. <laughs> yeah. um, did you always expect that you would end up getting in the military yourself, or what is it about no, your upbringing? That, it's funny, you know, I, I did not see myself on that same path. I, I really didn't, and uh, in college, I, I managed to cobble together uh, enough scholarships uh, to not take the ROTC scholarship. I, I had to figure out how to pay for college on my own. My, you know, my dad was in the military. He wasn't going to be able to foot that whole bill. Um, and I was on a very different path. I was uh, studying biology in school and had had a moment when I realized studying abroad and um, traveling abroad gives you a, a, a real appreciation for how good we have it here. And I had this moment of, of reflection and insight and realization that I had done absolutely nothing in my life to deserve the privileges I was enjoying as an American. And the very week I got home, I walked into the recruiter's office and said, I want to join the Navy and, and I want to be a Navy pilot. Uh, and the recruiter said, well, you can't just walk in here and do that. <laughs> Turns out there is a, there is a way, and it's, it's called walking on to the team. They, they take a handful of folks every year, not through ROTC or the academies, uh, but through uh, a, a, essentially a boot camp, and then they put you through pilot training. And that's how, that's how I got into it, was out of really pure patriotism and realizing that I owed my country something that I hadn't given, hadn't given it yet. So uh, you did intelligence type stuff. Then, That's right. right. What did that entail exactly? I mean, I guess to the extent that you're allowed to talk to <laughs> I'll be careful. Uh, most of my missions were uh, over the Middle East and off of North Korea. I flew uh, a signals intelligence platform that basically soaked up intelligence and we'd get as close as, as we could. And I had phenomenal air crews uh, at my back on on every one of those missions, I I was uh, an aircraft commander and eventually a mission commander. And uh, and the thing I miss most, to be perfectly honest, are are those missions, are those crews. A lot of people ask me if I miss the flying. The flying was fun. It was a heck of a lot of fun. Fun, but uh, I I miss more than anything that sense of of camaraderie and mission and working together with people you'd give your life for uh, to to get something done. So you, you said it was fun. I mean, I, I this is just me, but it seems like maybe it's kind of scary. <laughs> so <laughs> well, what's it like? The the flying the flying was absolutely fun. The the missions could be harrowing, especially the North Korea missions or some of our intelligence missions. Uh, off of uh, off of China and and Russia, uh, obviously sometimes those those countries did not want us there, uh, and they would they would let us know it, and and that got dicey at times. But I I I fell back on my training every time, and more important than that, I, I fell back on the the professionalism and, and dedication of of my crews. And you know the thing that 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 taught me more than anything is is that when you got a common goal and you're working towards it, everything else kind of falls behind the wayside. I, um, on one of those North Korea missions, I lost an engine. And it, that wasn't fun, to your point. That, that was a little, little harrowing. But in that moment, all we cared about as an air crew was completing that mission, putting that engine to bed, and, uh, and, and, and getting the crew down safely. And... I, I remember working with my co-pilot like 
like our lives depended on it because they did. And not once did, did I ask him if he was a Republican or a Democrat. Um, we got the job done. It's got to be nerve wracking, though. I mean, like, is it just a constant stream of adrenaline when you're no, off the coast? No, it's it's not. Uh, if if you've got the right team and you've got the right training, you sort of slip into a, a zone and you're just doing the mission and the nerves really don't uh, affect you. When the nerves um, got to me was actually after the mission when you'd have that, I, I'm sure there's a, a physiological term for it, but you'd, you'd have that sort of adrenaline uh, release or, or shut off. And then you'd still have to get back to the air base and God forbid you're flying in weather or a sandstorm in the case of the Middle East. I mean, some of my most nerve wracking missions were not actually being intercepted by enemy fighters, which happened <laughs> more often than, um, than you might think, but landing in, in the face of a, a sandstorm that was obliterating the far end of the runway as we're trying to make it to the approach end um, and get the plane down before it before it uh, eclipsed the entire airfield. Um, you know, there are other missions where we we had absolutely no backup plan. Uh, when when you're flying to to Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean, that was one of my one of my jobs during the Afghan War. Um, we would we would ferry through Diego Garcia and there's no backup plan if, if you can't put the plane down and dodge. That's our nickname for Diego Garcia. Every other mission I ever flew, you plan a fuel reserve because you can go somewhere else. But not Diego Garcia because there's nowhere else to go. Um, it's funny. Sometimes I think of, of this campaign in, in those terms. November 6th is like dodge. It's like Diego Garcia. There is no backup plan. We're not going to leave any fuel left in the tank because we gotta, we got to land this plane. we got to win this race. I think a lot of how I approach leadership today, how I approach this campaign, I, I get from my time in, in both the military and in Team Rubicon. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting capital letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's Cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. You mentioned the fact that he is a really compelling biography, one that the Democrats were attracted to because it seems real and authentic and American. Part of his background is his military experience. Did you guys touch at all on that? 
we actually talked quite a bit about his military experience. I mean, he, you know, he flew planes near North Korea and in the Middle East, and he's he's more foreign policy focused um, as a first-time candidate than a lot of other candidates you would see. I mean, he's never run for anything, but he's got a, I would say, a pretty strong grip on foreign policy just by virtue of, you know, having been in the Middle East and having been to the Korean Peninsula. And because of his intelligence background, he wasn't just kind of seek and destroy kind of guy, but he was, you know, go figure it out. And obviously he's getting briefed on what the political context is and stuff like that. I think it's also probably got to do with um, being on the humanitarian side as well. Right. You know, he... He founded a group, or he's the president of a group that took veterans who were out of service and basically took them back to, uh, you know, areas ravaged by natural disasters. Maybe there's uh, refugee issues there, anything like that, and it it takes them and you you go beyond and basically you see both sides of it. So often with kind of conflict and war and foreign policy, it's all about you know you see what happens in the battle. And then everything that kind of comes after it is collateral. He obviously has a very complete understanding of what the product of war is, which um, I guess kind of to go off that a little bit, though, we, we got into the immigration discussion, which I don't think is really something that he wants to really emphasize running in a conservative district. I mean, it's not I don't think he'd be eager to kind of have us sit here and say, oh, yeah, he's playing politics. But I mean, it's the reality. And it, but it still is very interesting to hear what he has to say. And I think that as a messenger, he has the authority to discuss that. And so um, I, I found it really interesting to talk to him about it. With that, let's listen to more from Ken Harbaugh. I did want to ask you one thing yeah, about sure. your past and uh, going all the way back. I heard you flunked kindergarten. Who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> is it true? It is true, but let's provide a little context here. That's I, what I'm asking for. Growing up overseas, you know, sometimes you uh, – you go to school where you can go to school. And in kindergarten, I went to a German-speaking school as a kid who didn't speak German, except for two words, um, lunch and bathroom. And I tried very hard not to confuse those two um, when I was asking for one or the other. But um, yeah, I attended German kindergarten, and lo and behold, didn't quite make the grade uh, the first time through. So uh, I got to do it twice. Do you Um, speak German now? Not anymore. But I've I've been back to Germany. Uh, Team Rubicon is is global now. As president of, of Team Rubicon Global, that that required uh, some some trips to Europe. And turns out, in some ways, it's like riding a bike when that when those language skills are that deeply embedded. When you learn it early enough, it stays with you. So I can understand, but uh, uh, speaking it is is a, a little bit of a leap. Although by the by the second week there, I was doing a lot better. You also studied at uh, Duke and Oxford, correct? That's right. Yes. Were you a Are you a Rhodes Scholar? No, Is that you... no. Um, I I mentioned earlier I cobbled together some scholarships to Duke, and one of those had, unbeknownst to me, uh, an opportunity to study in Oxford. So uh, I think it was the summer between my junior and senior year I, I spent studying. Um, studying history in, in Oxford on Duke's time, which was great. They got to pay for it. So you served nine years in the Navy? I served nine years, yep. Does that take a toll on your family? Did you have a family at that time? Yes, I, I had a family at that time. And when I told Anne Marie, I met Anne Marie um, the first day of sophomore year in college and, and decided that this was probably the girl 
that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. It took two years to convince her of that. Actually, two years to break her and her boyfriend up and another couple of years um, to get A long game that you were playing. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Playing the long game with Anne-Marie, but uh, it's going pretty good so far. We got married in 1998 in Medina, Ohio, Um, but I remember... So many trips to Ohio, uh, meeting her family, trying to trying to win her over. Um, after after meeting her on that first day of school, sophomore year in in college. Uh, what was the question? You got me talking about Anne Marie. I'm gonna go way <laughs> off track. Um, I'm just wondering what kind of toll you know being in the Navy That's for nine right. years, flying yeah. over North Korea, flying in the Middle East. What what kind of toll does that take on a family? It's tough. Uh, it's it's tough, and I don't think families get nearly enough credit for the burden that they carry. Uh, a lot of military vets get the the accolades, they get the thank yous in the airports. You know, I've had folks offer me their their seat up front in first class, and um, I'm fine in, in in coach, by the way. But uh, that's that's all incredibly um, incredibly appreciated. But the families shoulder, in some ways, more of a burden uh, because they have to wait and wonder. And Anne-Marie had to wait and wonder every time I, I went off. Now, she's, she's pretty independent and pretty tough, and she certainly kept herself busy teaching in some of the, the toughest schools she could find. But when I think about that oath of office that I swore as a 22-year-old, when I joined the Navy, to, to the Constitution, not to a party, incidentally, certainly not to a president. And I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I think families have to buy into that same promise, and, and they do not get nearly enough credit or support for shouldering that burden for the rest of us. We have the 1% problem, there's the one you know we always talk about, but there's the other 1% problem, which is that 1% of our society today is shouldering the burden of protecting the rest of us, 1% serving in uniform um, and, and their families. And whatever we can do to acknowledge the sacrifice of those families, I think we need to do. Where does the support need to come from? Is it, is it the community not supporting families enough? Is it the government not supporting families enough? Well, the first step is is the communities, the communities that these uh, these families reside in. There's this misconception that military families all live on base and they get all the support they need, and um, and they have the, the the social infrastructure they need, and that is increasingly not the case with military families today, especially when you talk about the Guard and Reserve families, that oftentimes live in in civilian communities and have very little connection to their civilian neighbors. Certainly when it comes to having tough conversations about what it means to send a loved one overseas for months at a time to a place where they might not come back from. I think the first thing we have to do is, is start having those, those brave, even sometimes awkward conversations with folks about, um, about what that sacrifice entails. And it can start with something as, a, as simple as, a, you know, how you doing? Um, I, I know your, your spouse has been gone for so many weeks, months. How you doing? Uh, it, can, it can be that simple. Uh, I think that's some, someplace all of us could start. 
So you left the Navy in 2005, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm wondering that's, you know, what, 13 years later. Yeah. And we're still involved in a lot of the conflicts that we were in 2005. I think right. of the mission accomplished banner on the. Yeah, don't remind me. And I mean, do you think, did you think when you left in 2005 that we would still be involved in some of those foreign policy disputes 10 years later? I, years later? I wasn't sure of the form it would take, but I've been on the ground in Afghanistan and I know that a problem like that is not a problem you can solve in a couple of years. And when you bite something like that off, you better be committed for the long term or you better be darn realistic about um, what you're going to leave behind. Expectations need to be set early on. And we should not, as a country, be getting into, uh, into conflicts without understanding uh, what we're biting off. I think part of the reason we do get into these conflicts Part of the reason we, we've embarked on, uh, on far too many misadventures is because we have a political class today that has virtually no connection to the people they're sending to do their fighting, to do our fighting. We have the lowest percentage of veterans in Congress than at any point in modern history. And if you think there's not a direct correlation between that and the, the misguided um, use of, of our military, uh, then, then you're kidding yourselves. Uh, we've never had, um, in, in the modern era, as few representatives with military experience making decisions of war and peace, life and death, than we have today. And if, if we're going to address these, um, these war and peace, life and death issues, we need to take much more seriously the need for that kind of experience. I think there's a stereotype that, you know, people with military backgrounds just want to blow everything up or they they view uh, problems in sort of a military type way. Um, but it sounds like you're saying with somebody with a military background like yourself that you're kind of that they're more critical about it. Um, you know, yeah. what, what do you think? Well, about we've that? got skin in the game. A lot of us have been there. If if there is a stereotype that, that I think should be perpetuated, it's the one of of problem solvers, of people who want to get something done, who can put country over party. I mean, that is the foundation of the military ethos, is putting the country first. Uh, a lot of folks can say country over party, um, but I don't think it's really tested until you've sacrificed something or risked something for that ideal. And at the very least, military veterans have, have done that. Uh, but when it comes to the seriousness with which military veterans approach these decisions, that to me is inarguable. They've got skin in the game. I've lost friends over there. I'm going to be incredibly critical any time a decision or incredibly thoughtful any time a decision like that comes up in a way that only someone who's, uh, who's experienced that hardship firsthand uh, can be. Why do you think veterans aren't you know, or haven't been for the past <laughs> decade or so, let's say that, since there are quite a few veterans running this time yep. around. Why Why do you think they kind of slipped from, you know... Yeah, yeah a couple of reasons, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm in a better position to answer this now, having, having been on the trail, having been in the fight and here on the home front for better part of a year now. The first is that the typical pathway to, 
to federal office no longer runs through the military. It doesn't run through places like Fallujah or, or Kabul. It runs through law firms and it runs through investment banks. Nothing wrong with those professions um, except when they become gatekeepers for, uh, for reaching political office. And to attain federal office these days, to become a representative in Congress, it uh, feels like you got to be somewhere for decades to not just build a political base of support, but to rack up favors and and build your inroads with the with the political party. And military service makes that really hard, uh, as we talked about up at the top, bouncing around every couple of years. Uh, makes it really tough to put down those roots and build that base of support with the political party. But I think 2018 is is going to prove that that the rules have changed, that that's not necessary because, Seth, of, of your observation about the unprecedented number of military vets running this year. It's astonishing and inspiring, and when I'm around them, incredibly humbling to see so many folks who've served in the military, so many who've, who've fought in Iraq or Afghanistan coming back and deciding, you know what? If I was going to put my life on the line for my country over there, well, what I see happening right now in my country is worth fighting for too. Um, even if that means entering this arena I'm so unfamiliar with. And I think we're in a very real way we're breaking the the rule book in half. We're we're defying all that that party architecture that prescribes how you should how you should get there, and we're doing it the hard way. But we're doing it together, and, and I love that. Why why now? Why are veterans coming out now to run specifically? Like what what is it about 2018? I think you you go back to 2016 and that whole election cycle. And what it felt like as a vet to see our country tearing itself apart. It was like a punch in the gut, seeing the political division, the, the, the anger on both sides, and realizing that unless good people who have proven that they mean it when they say country over party are going to step up, uh, then we're going to keep getting more of the same. If there's a common thread connecting every vet I know who's who's running this year it's that feeling that that they had that we had in 2016 during the the political circus that that was that election year you know it's rare we get someone with uh, quite a bit of foreign policy experience on here and I'm kind of wondering about you know foreign policy has been in a lot of people's minds, especially over the last two years because of Russia and everything. Yeah. You know, Mitt Romney called Russia America's greatest geopolitical foe in 2012, and everyone kind of laughed at it. Right, him. he was mocked for that. And, you know, I think he... Unfairly. Yeah, he was probably kind of vindicated a little bit come 2016 when it turns out, you know, there, there were efforts to basically interfere with the election. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think of, you know, the, the Russian interference that we've seen... Um, you know, given your military background? It's it's alarming. It is not surprising. It is not surprising one bit. I am I'm grateful that our institutions still operate for now uh, and that a serious investigation is underway 
And as a citizen, as a voter, as someone who put his life on the line for this country and really means it when, when I say country over party, I think we're entitled to know what happened. I, I think we got to reserve judgment until that, until what happened is revealed. But I, I still have faith that the system is going to work and the investigation is going to uncover um, the truth. You know, in the past, they've, you know, we talked about, the, we as a country, mm-hmm. talked about the USSR and communism right. was an existential threat, or uh, communism in Vietnam was an existential threat to democracy, or terrorism in the Middle East was an existential threat to democracy. Is this an actual existential threat, this interference? Great question, and I guess it depends on how you mean it. When I think about the health of our democracy, I think about our engagement as citizens and our vulnerability to this kind of meddling and this kind of influence. And if we do have the ability to counter, it's going to be through the strength of of our civic institutions and our citizens themselves. And I think what we're seeing now in 2018 with this unprecedented outpouring of, of, of civic energy, of engagement, is proof that that we can do it. Not only that, but that we are still very much a, a self-correcting democracy. And when things get too far out of whack, um, when there is this kind of interference in the system, uh, people get upset enough that, uh, that they engage. When, when we're holding campaign events out in the district, um, I would venture to say that at least two-thirds of the people coming out have never done anything like that before. They've never been to a rally. Uh, they've, they've never engaged in, in the political process other than to vote. But we have hundreds of people writing thank you cards for us, knocking on doors, doing phone banking, and thousands more coming out to events to ask questions, sometimes really tough questions. And that, to me, is, is inspiring. It's a reminder of, of what I fought for and a, a reminder that when, when people engage, democracy is at its best, and there is no external force that that can stop us. I think that's the real answer. We've got to let the investigation run its course. We have to we have to ferret out the truth and and hold those who are responsible accountable. But the real salvation is going to come from the American people themselves making their voice heard on election day. What do you make of the investigation so far and some of the politics that have surrounded it? Honestly, I've had my head down in the district and have uh, have done my best to to stay out of the uh, inside the DC Beltway chess game, uh, and and that's that's helped me focus on what is really most important for for my neighbors and the voters in the Ohio Seventh, and and I think we're going to know soon enough. Uh, with hard facts being produced by the investigation, exactly, exactly what happened, and and probably the smartest thing is to wait until then. 
Do you think Donald Trump colluded with Russia from what you've seen or his campaign colluded with Russia? I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, and I, um, I think Mueller's going to get to the bottom of it, though, for sure. Should uh, Congress you know, institute some of the sanctions that, uh, or I guess rather should Trump institute some of the sanctions that Congress passed last year? I, well, yes. I mean, there is a separation of powers for a reason, and, and Congress is, um, is well within its rights to, uh, to demand that kind of action, and, and the president should absolutely act on it. You know, in 2016, we heard a lot of uh, you know, rhetoric about kind of the external threats yeah. that were facing us. Uh, you know, whether it was ISIS or, you know, whatever was going on, big banks, anything like that. What What are the threats facing us today? Are they more internal um, because we have kind of a divided country? Do you think that that is sort of a bigger threat to us now? What compelled me to to jump into the race was this feeling that we had a political class that really did not believe in their oaths of office. By the way, they swear the same oath, uh, representatives to Congress, that I swore as a 22-year-old to support and defend the Constitution. But you get the feeling, looking at inability to solve problems, the extreme partisanship, the party-line votes, cycle after cycle after cycle, that, that folks who have who've never risked anything for that oath don't take it to heart. And they may say the same words, but they're really, in their heart, devoted to the party or to the executive. They're not devoted to the Constitution. Um, I think that is, in a very real way, a threat to our way of life. When you have a political class that does not believe in country over party, that to me is the greatest threat to, to the republic. The, the dysfunction in our politics, the inability to get anything done, it's undermining the faith of of Ohioans in the system itself. And when you lose faith in democracy, democracy has failed. But if we, if we indeed are successful in 2018 in sending a, a loud and clear message to that political class that you either put the country first or we'll send people in your place who will do it for you, uh, then, then we write the ship. And by we, I mean... I mean, we the people, the first three words of the Constitution to which I swore an oath, we the people are the ultimate guarantors of our freedom, and we the people in 2018 can, can begin to fix this. You mentioned a political class, and I notice you're not necessarily saying it's a political party or anything like that. Is it a cross-party problem yeah, that you're it's, talking it's, about? It's a cross-party problem, uh, absolutely. And the, the whole party architecture, uh, I think, is... Um, is is problematic, but the the good news is that you've got a class of candidates running now who didn't ask permission, who are running because of what they believe in their guts, and they are running for their neighbors and uh, and for the Constitution. Did you see anything over on your deployments? Uh, that you're seeing now in America that, you know, maybe there's some similarities or anything that worry you? Great question. Um, almost certainly. Uh, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to 
really think about it to give you a, a great example. But in um, in the UK, I, I think, and this is this is post deployment, but I think Brexit is an example of a uh, a vote. And in Team Rubicon, I, I did deploy to the UK. Um, and so I'm going to take the liberty of, of, of bringing that in as my example. You saw a population that was, that was fed up and felt like a political class was being unresponsive. And so in a lot of ways, they voted out of frustration, out of anger. And, uh, and I think Brexit is a direct result of that outpouring of frustration and, and anger. Uh, which I get. I certainly get it in this country, talking to my neighbors and getting the sense that that a lot of folks have felt unrepresented, unserved by Washington and left behind, especially here in Ohio. You know, you uh, you founded the nonprofit, uh, The Mission Continues, right. correct? Yeah. Uh, that kind of keeps vets active in the yes, community exactly. when they get back. Um, you also were the president of Team Rubicon Global that gets uh, that that basically deploys quote unquote uh, vets to mm-hmm. areas to basically help with humanitarian disasters. Right. Why did you think that those two outlets were? We talked about politics being an outlet for veterans. Yeah. Why did you think those two outlets were also good for veterans? I don't think I whiteboarded this. <laughs> it was in the first instance the mission continues a direct outcome of this gut-wrenching moment I had at Bethesda Naval Hospital. A buddy of mine had just been blown up in a suicide truck bomb attack in Fallujah, Iraq. And I remember driving down to Bethesda Naval Hospital in, in kind of a daze. But I had this kind of selfish idea driving down there that I was going to provide some some comfort and some company to the Marines recovering there. Bethesda is where most of our Marines uh, come back to to begin their long journey uh, to recovery, to to reintegrate either to their units or into civilian life. And when I got to Bethesda and began meeting with these Marines, exactly the opposite thing happened. Every single one of them inspired me. They gave me the, the reassurance that I needed because every single one of them said in so many words that they wanted to get back to their units. They wanted to serve again. Now, I knew looking at their injuries that a lot of them wouldn't be able to get back to their units. But what they were really saying is that they weren't done. They weren't done contributing to their communities, to their country. They wanted to be useful again. And I'll never forget what one of them said as he was about to be wheeled into his 10th reconstructive surgery. He said, uh, I lost my legs, but that's it. I didn't lose my desire to serve or my pride in being an American. And that that hit me hard. And with a buddy of mine, we we took that idea of continued service and turned it into the mission continues. And from that, um, that led to, to Team Rubicon, which has really carried that torch of engaging veterans in continued service and turned it into an organization with 50,000 military vets ready to deploy at a moment's notice anywhere they're needed. Um, And as part of that, I've I've deployed to 
tornado zones and flood zones in this country, typhoon zones overseas. One of my most recent deployments was to a, a refugee camp for Iraqis and Syrians displaced by ISIS. Incredibly impactful work. And I tell you, there's, there's no catharsis like bringing a bunch of uh, Iraq vets to a refugee camp for Iraqis. And they're there not with guns this time. They're not worried about getting shot. They're there doing pure good, helping people in the worst days of their lives. During the 2016 election, there's a lot of talk about refugees, and that was like a geopolitical issue um, because of just being displaced from the conflicts that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Um, How did your experience there inform how you view that issue, and and what do you think is kind of the right approach to dealing with that humanitarian (laughs) problem? When when I when I think about refugees and and immigration, my my first thought goes to my my granddad, German American who flew for his country in World War II, his country being the United States. I think about Anne Marie's granddad, my wife's granddad, Orlin Scarpetti. Uh, that's about as Italian a name as, as you can get, right? And in World War II, he fought for his country in Italy against the fascist government there. His country was the United States of America. Immigrants like my grandfather and Anne Marie's grandfather make the, make the best patriots. You mentioned that he's raised a lot of money in a Republican-majority district. Does he have any shot of winning in 2018? What do you think his chances are? I would put him, you know, I would put that district on the kind of far outside chances. I don't want to say that it's impossible by any stretch. I mean, we don't know exactly what we're looking at come November 2018. That said, he's probably the right type of candidate who can put up a fight in that district compared with, you know— some other Democratic candidates. I mean, what do you? Here's the question: What are you going to attack him for? You're going to attack him for being a veteran? I mean, you know, then you're unpatriotic. What? What? What is the line of attack on him? I just, I don't, I, I mean, don't know. I'm peering into my crystal ball. I'm summoning the spirits, mm-hmm. and I see Nancy Pelosi. Um, I think that what's going to happen to him ultimately is that you're going to see that district get flooded with ads photoshopping a bad picture of him next to a picture of Nancy Pelosi or something along those lines. I mean, he didn't really want to get into party politics. Seth, you you know, you know asked him about that. He didn't really bite. Um, and you can tell that he that's just not something that he wants to discuss. But I think it's a reality that he's going to have to eventually be confronted with because people, it, it, even if, um, you know, not kind of like the boogeyman approach, if I'm a Republican voter, I want to know that he's good on my issues. And, you know, that's another Democrat in Congress potentially is just another vote for pick, you know, social issue A, whatever the pet issue is. He very deliberately didn't talk about Republican or Democrat. Now, he's running as a Democrat, and he didn't, you know, he said the problems weren't a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. They were a political class problem. And I, I, I don't know how well that messaging might work in that district because, you know, typically speaking in a district like that, you're a little weary of the, you know, quote-unquote political class if there is one. So... It, it might kind of play well. Sure. Like he's, you know, the political outsider. He's running against the D.C. insider, even though Bob Gibbs is we, we didn't actually talk about it at all, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But um, Bob Gibbs was, has a farmer background. I mean, so he's not like this uh, Washington fat cat by any means, but he's he's held office for a long time. And so if you want to run a political outsider kind of thing, I mean, he's got a compelling case to make there. 
And with that, let's listen to more from the interview we did with Ken Harbaugh here on Ohio Matters. So, so we've talked about Syria, you know, the UK, yeah. uh, North Korea. So how did you end up in Ohio? How did I end up in Ohio? Uh, a girl. <laughs> I followed a girl to Ohio, Anne-Marie. Um, yeah, Anne-Marie Kelly from, from Medina High School. Uh, wound up in, in college uh, in the same dorm as me and... And I met her on day one of, of sophomore year and uh, married her a couple of years later um, and 1998, October 24th, in St. Francis Church in Medina. And even during my time in the Navy, Ohio always drew us back, of course. Her entire family is, is, is from the area, from Northeast Ohio. Uh, we, we got our kids baptized there. Um, when we had first opportunity to choose where we were going to put down roots we we chose ohio because that's where we wanted to raise a family we could have picked anywhere but we picked ohio so when was that uh that was oh nine we settled down after i got out of the the navy and finished school we settled down in oh nine in uh northeast ohio so uh, i guess this is like the big question yeah. why are you running for office <laughs> why am i running for office I'm running because of the buddies I left behind in Iraq and Afghanistan and the sense that we're not doing right by them. We're not doing right by their memory as a country. The, the political division we're seeing, the inability of our leaders, well, I might put that in quotes, our political class to get anything meaningful done on the toughest issues of the day. Uh, I'm running for my daughter Lizzie, who needed four surgeries before she turned four years old. And Anne-Marie and I had to schedule the first of those without any way to pay for it. And that was a terrifying place to be in as a father, as a family. And we got lucky. I landed a great job with a, with a company in Cleveland with a gold-plated healthcare plan. But it shouldn't have to be a roll of the dice for a family to wonder or to take care of a sick kid. And I know there are tens of thousands of Ohio families in that boat right now, and they're not getting the, the representation they deserve. They're not being fought for the way they need to be fought for. That's why I'm running for Congress. So you're running in a district that Donald Trump won by 30 points in yeah. 2016. Uh, what's So, I mean, uh, you're Ken Harbaugh, and you're Ken Harbaugh veteran, father, and all that stuff. But you're, yeah. you're also Ken Harbaugh Democrat. Uh, how are you received, and how do you, um, you know, how do you find that people receive you? One of the things that I'm reminded of again and again at, at every town hall we've done, on just about every door I knock on, on every conversation I have in a driveway, is that Ohioans really do believe in putting the country first in this notion of country over party. We're, above all, Americans. Uh, we're Ohioans next, somewhere way down the list. We might be Republicans or Democrats, but the things that bring us together are far are, are, are far more important than the things we're being told should divide us. The things that, that keep my neighbors up at night, how we're going to take care of a sick kid, uh, whether our, our brother or sister or loved one overseas is going to make it back safely or whether they're even there for the right reasons. The things that we lie awake worrying about at night are almost all the same. Uh, and being able to convey that as as someone who is who has lived it is is powerful this 
whole idea of country over party isn't new, but it has new resonance in 2018 uh, in, a, in a political season where people are just so sick and tired of the partisanship of, of party politics. They're looking for, for leaders who will, one, listen, who will actually show up and do town halls, um, who will take the tough questions, and who they can trust when they hear, when they hear, party over, uh, when they hear country over party. So why are you a Democrat? I'm a Democrat because of Lizzie. I'm a Democrat because if, if we don't win this battle as a country over, over what health care is, then my little girl with a pre-existing condition is going to be uninsurable until she turns 65 and goes on Medicare. Is that the America you want to raise your kids in? That's not the America I fought for. The good news is we're going to win this fight. Uh, families with kids like Lizzie are not going to have to roll the dice to, to see if their kid's going to get a life-saving treatment or surgery. Um, and I know that because of the class of candidates I'm running with. Uh, we're running because of this, this vision of America that, that we fought for that we're going to make real. We've seen this kind of internal fighting in the Democratic Party between the you know, the Bernie Sanders of the world, the the quote-unquote true progressives, and then the Chuck Schumers, the kind of, you know, more middle-of-the-road Democrats, and even the, you know, Joe Manchin types or whatever who are kind of on the conservative side. What what kind of Democrat do you consider yourself? You know, I, I mean, I, I would might even take issue with the premise because I, I don't see that in the Ohio 7th. I really don't. And I've talked to thousands of people, and I've held, you know, more town halls and meet-and-greets that I can count. And there seems to be a consensus that the stakes, at least among my neighbors in the Ohio 7th, are life and death. The stakes are life and death, and we don't have time for that kind of internecine battle, um, Democrats tearing each other apart. When you look at, well, health care, which we just, just talked about, the stakes are very literally life and death. When you look at the opioid crisis, which is affecting everybody in the district, I haven't talk to anybody who isn't either directly or one or two degrees of separation removed from uh, from someone suffering from addiction. It's a life and death election, and, uh, and at least in the Ohio 7th, there seems to be a real coming together around that realization and, and our, our need to, to win this one. Um, Ohio led the nation in opioid deaths last year uh, and the year before, <laughs> and we just experienced a 39% increase on top of that. 5,232 deaths in Ohio, and the Ohio 7th is one of the worst districts in the state. That's what I mean by life and death. I, I had a woman come up to me after uh, an event in, in Stark County, most populous county in the district, and she said, Ken, you got to win. You have to win because you have no idea how bad it actually is. We're probably undercounting the number of deaths. And I can explain that in a second. But she told me that the Stark County morgue had just had to rent a freezer truck to handle the overflow. I can't tell you how many moms or, or brothers or, or dads have come up to me and said, Ken, you have to win. It's always some variation of that because... I got a, I got a loved one 
that we tried to get into a detox program and there were no beds available. Early in the campaign, I had a mom come up to me and say, Ken, I just buried my only son. I just buried my only son because we were on a waiting list for three months for a bed in a treatment facility and we were told there was no funding. She's not wrong there. And two weeks away from getting his slot, he overdosed. So in a district like this, where the, the stakes are as high as they could possibly be, uh, I'm not seeing what, uh, what you're talking about with this, this internecine battle on one side. But it does sound like you're seeing people kind of upset with, you know, uh, Republican control and yes. even Trump and all that. But, you know, Trump, like, you know, we said Trump was very popular there. Why do you think it's shifting all of a sudden? I think the, the vote for, for President Trump was a, a vote cast out of, uh, out of frustration. Folks wanting to try anything but the status quo and, and grasping at, at hope, hoping that someone might be able to shock the system enough to, to deliver some real change. Uh, I don't think that, that change is coming, at least not the way that, uh, that it was hoped for. Uh, sure, the the stock market might be booming, and Wall Street Wall Street um, might be doing better. And and I know that I'm all for growth, and uh, for for those folks with with uh, 401ks, um, that's great. But when you look at Main Street and compare it to Wall Street, things aren't getting better. Things are not getting better. We are not seeing that th- those benefits accrue to the middle class. Like, like we need. And it's the middle class that, that I'm in the race to fight for. Do, uh, do people ever ask you if you're related to Jim Harbaugh? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so what's worse, being a Democrat or being a University of Michigan football coach? You know, we lean into it. We lean into it. Um, there's, there's something kind of fun about running as a Harbaugh in Ohio during parade season. Uh, I wear the Buckeyes jersey with Harbaugh written on the back, and every once in a while, candy gets thrown back. But uh, for the most part, Ohioans have a sense of humor, and I sure as heck don't have the name recognition problem. Everyone knows how to Google it. And pronounce it, I guess. And pronounce it. That's right. One thing we've been asking all of our guests, you know, the name of this podcast is Uh Ohio Matters. And one of the things we're trying to explore is, does Ohio still matter? Does it matter as much as it used to, as much as it always has? Well, Ohio, uh, and I know you guys are on the political beat. Of course, it matters politically. As Ohio goes, so goes the country. Um, but Ohio has just an incredible wealth of, of resources, the most important of which is our, is our people. Um, if you look at the, the greater region, uh, Ohio and the surrounding states and the, uh, the Canadian provinces uh, to the north of the lakes, we represent the fifth, sorry, the third largest economy in the world, right after China and the United States. The potential here is enormous if we just had some vision and leadership to tap into it. I want to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Yeah. Your, uh, your wife provided us with a list of some of the odd <laughs> jobs you did while you were in college. Oh, boy. Uh, one of them that struck me was a test case for a hyperbaric chamber. Yeah. All right. 
Is there a question in that? <laughs> no, I don't even know what it is. So, what, yeah, what does that entail? What does that entail? So, uh, yeah, I, I did a number of things to to put myself through school. I remember uh, running out of money one semester, and instead of getting a real job, I, I made a deal with the uh, the kitchen staff that if I I did dishes, <laughs> they would feed me. Um, that turned out to be a, a pretty awful job, although you know I I, I did eat. Um, a better job was working with a bunch of uh, SEALs at the hyperbaric chamber at the Duke Med Center. Um, and, uh, and these guys were rewriting the dive tables, which are the, the tables that determine how deep you can go for how long and, and when you can surface. And they said, come on, it'll be fun, Ken. And, and my job for 75 bucks uh, a pop was to go into a, uh, a hyperbaric chamber, which is uh, basically a steel cylinder that can pressurize up to like 1,000 feet of depth. I never went that deep. Um, but they put you in it. Um, they tell you to do some exercises as you go down to a simulated depth, and then they pop the cork which basically means they release the pressure slowly and ask you when your joints start hurting. That's the bends. Sounds fun. So, yeah, it was a blast. They weren't wrong, but uh, in, in hindsight, I might have asked for more than 75 bucks to do it. You're also an octopus trainer, weren't you? Uh, yeah. So uh, that was a, believe it or not, uh, some, some Alzheimer's research studying memory retention in an animal that, believe it or not, is really, really smart. I think I have some some leftover guilt from <laughs> from my my uh, experiments with uh, the octopuses, but we would train them to do a certain task uh, and then uh, apply a treatment that that was uh, either supposed to enhance or reverse memory. Um, and see if they could see if they could remember it. So my job was to get them to learn to either grab the smooth ball or the the striped ball, uh, and then see if they could still remember how to do that afterwards. So, yeah. so how do you train an octopus to do that exactly? Um, risk and reward, uh, and and this is where where the guilt comes in because there's only, really only one way. You know, when they do it right, you feed them a little piece of shrimp. When they do it wrong, you you know you poke them. Um, which is, you know, not very nice, but in the interest of science, I, I, uh, I guess I can rationalize it. Uh, how did you find these jobs? Great question. I have to go back and look, but I, you know, I had, I had mentors and professors, uh, who, who knew that, you know, I needed a little work here and there and, and, and they offered them up. Um, so I think they kind of came to me. Do, do yeah. you ever feel like you missed your calling as a professional <laughs> octopus trainer? Like you could have your own octopus circus or? Uh, no, no. I'm happy where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Anne-Marie is too. You know, you mentioned Anne-Marie. You've talked uh, about her a couple of times. Sure. Uh, one of the interesting things about your campaign is spouses are often very involved right. in the campaign. Yeah. I believe yours is even more so involved. Right. Well, Anne-Marie and I have done done everything together we 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 wrote a book together you want to test a marriage try writing a book together um and we are very much in this race together Anne marie is our communications director and it's it works pretty well because if anyone 
uh, knows what uh, what I stand for and, and what my values are and, and how to communicate those. It's the person who's been with me for the last 20 years. You know, typically speaking, if, uh, if, if I guess it were a sort of quote-unquote normal arrangement and you got upset with your communications director, you could fire them. <laughs> I know. What, what do you do if your communications director screws up this time? Uh, I think if my communications director got fired, she'd probably run against me and win. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. Good idea. Keep your keep your uh, competition close. Exactly. Yeah. Keep your uh, friends close. Your oh, I can't use that analogy, <laughs> can I? <laughs> All right, Ken. Thank you so much Bet. for stopping by Thanks, and chatting guys. with us. Of course, it was a pleasure.